I'd like to call your attention to Psalm 133. You can turn there. I'm calling this message with one accord, the praying ecclesia, with one accord, the praying ecclesia, or the praying church, or assembly of saints. If you have Psalm 133, let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for so great a salvation. We thank you, Lord, for this precious word. We thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for the gift of prayer. And we do pray even now for prayer. Lord, we would not only give off verbiage, but we ask that you would give to us the spirit of prayer as your people, for this is a portion of our inheritance in the gospel and of your inheritance in your people. So we pray for that today, Lord. Would you give us a glimpse of what it means to be with one accord and to be that ecclesia, that church, that people, which is given to prayer, partnered together in prayer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to look at Psalm 133 and think about the spirit of what the psalmist was setting forth and giving description to as it speaks to our life together as a church that is called to be partnered in prayer. Before I get into the text, I want to say there's probably a mixture of emotions going on in this room right now, even by bringing up the subject of prayer. Some will be thinking it's about time they talk on prayer again. Others will be thinking, I'm so excited to look into the word and to hear the word on prayer that the Lord might enlarge my heart and grant me greater faith and hunger and wisdom in prayer. And others are thinking, oh no, another message on prayer? Others are thinking, "Uh, what's going to happen now? Is this going to be the proverbial hammer on my forehead because... I've been so choppy in prayer, so inconsistent in prayer. Not only have I neglected the prayer gatherings of our church, but I've neglected my own secret life in prayer. How could this be of help to me? I'm beat down, discouraged, and I don't know what to do. I know that the seed of life is in me, and I'm called to be a person of prayer and involved with a people who constitute a church that prays. But where do I go from here? How can I grow from here? We have no better place to go than to the scriptures themselves and to opening our hearts to the Holy Spirit who has been given to us not on the basis of our own fervency and religious prowess and zeal, but on the basis of the blood that was shed on that holy mount on that precious day that we call Calvary. And so... Even in this psalm, whispers and hints of the sweetness of the gospel come forth. Let's read Psalm 133, which is a song of ascents. One of the songs that the the Jerusalem saints used to sing together as they were approaching the temple of God to celebrate the Lord in the different feasts that Israel celebrated. And the psalmist wrote, Behold, how good and pleasant It is 
when brothers dwell together in unity. Don't pass over that because you're familiar with it too quickly. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. The psalmist is pointing out something here. There's something good and there's something that is pleasant, that is sweet, that is clear-aired, that is wonderful. And it has to do with this reality of brothers dwelling together in unity, which even when I quote that is unfortunately a phrase that is tainted by ecumenicism and by all kinds of worldly definitions of what unity is. But there's something of a godly reality called dwelling together in unity that can only be established by the power of God's grace and by the reality of his truth as it works itself out in the life of the saints. In fact, there's no such thing in the world as dwelling together in unity. This is an experience that can only be given to those who belong to the community of the redeemed. We can rally around certain themes together. The rights of women, the rights of uh, families, even noble uh, causes like the rights of the unborn. But only in Christ and by the Spirit and by His Word can we know what it means as brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. This is central to the life of prayer in the church, and that's why I believe the Lord directed me to begin here. He says this unity in verse 2 is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, the ancient high priest, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. That is Hermon, a, a mountain that was more elevated than Zion, and its moisture traveled down and rested upon the hill of Zion. The psalmist says, brethren dwelling together in unity is like these things, like the oil that runs down, the pure olive oil which is beaten from olives, saturating, cleansing, and the same with the dew of Hermon. For there, in this place, where brothers dwell together in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I want to read a few statements that were given in commentaries on this passage. Looking at Psalm 133, a German scholar by the name of Hans Joachim Krauss spoke of this passage and he said it pictures, uh, in pictures that radiate refreshment, this psalm illustrates the good fortune of a partnership in life among brothers. In pictures that radiate refreshment. I need to ask here, when, when was the last time that your faith, hope, and expectation for gathering in prayer with the saints was that you would leave that gathering having been refreshed by truth, by fellowship, by the work of the Spirit, by the unity of the saints, by what we share together in prayer. For some of you, I need to ask, and don't take this only as the club to the head, but take it as a question from the Lord. 
when was the last time you were even concerned to come to the gathering of the saints in which you would dwell together in unity in prayer with your brothers and sisters? When was the last time you valued that? When was the last time you thought of that as something precious? When was the last time you thought of that as, as being uh, in conjoinment with what the ancient Israelites thought when they were going to the temple to celebrate the feasts of the Lord? It was something precious. And so the, the psalmist says in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. It wasn't a cheapy religious plastic smile he was putting on. I was glad and aren't I a good Christian because I'm happy to be here. No, there was something in the depths of his soul in his heart that said, I was glad when they said it's time. It's time to go and to sing with the saints. It's time to go and pray with the saints, to be engaged in that worship together, that prayer together. How good and pleasant it was to him. The commentator goes on to say, the Near East oil is mixed with sweet-smelling spices and it serves in hair care and skin care. The oil is poured out over the hair and runs down into the beard. There is no thought here of holy oil, but of soothing cosmetic that brings refreshment. Well, that's debatable. But this scholar says that he doesn't think the psalmist is even referring to the oil, for instance, in the lampstand, the Levitical lampstand. He's just giving a point that the oil that flows down is something refreshing and nourishing good and pleasant. Then he says the second picture probably refers to the dew of summer, which refreshes and moistens the land. That is, the place where brothers dwell together on the undivided inheritance. I read this this morning. I said, wow. The scholar probably doesn't even know it, but I think the Lord is providentially giving thoughts to him here. These brothers who are dwelling together in unity, they dwell together on the undivided inheritance. This speaks to us of our covenant-keeping God and the gospel. So why do we come to prayer? As the people of God, why do we partner in prayer? Firstly, because the lamb who was slain is worthy. He has purchased us. He's wonderful. It's, it's, we're glad to go only when we are seeing him as he is. And when we are not seeing him as he is, you can be sure that all kinds of emotions and ideas and opinions about prayer will rise up in your soul. And Satan is very vigilant to water them in our minds. Let me give a few examples. Prayer meeting, if I go, is going to be a waste of time. The prayer meeting will be boring. People will pray things that are in left field. And it'll be difficult to focus together. Well, when I go to the prayer meeting, they don't pray for the things that I'm most concerned about. They don't pray for the local church. or They don't pray for us to have better theology in the church. Or they don't pray enough for missions. They don't pray for Israel. They don't pray that we would uh, have a deeper love for one another. They don't ever pray for practical things like people's jobs and, and, and their marriages and their parenting. So why should I go? And 
You can be sure when that kind of thing is going on in your mind, whatever it may be, if it is a negative view about prayer, it has not come from above. It is, if it is a view at all that discourages you from engaging in prayer with the people of God, then it has not come from God. You say, well, of course, that's really simple. That's a simple concept. I, well, do you believe that? Does the way that you approach prayer in the church say something of that kind of character? Or is it, is it that you know these things in your mind? You know that prayer is central, that prayer is holy, that it's precious, that by prayer God accomplishes His works in the earth. You know these things, but your value system, your affections are removed from what you say you believe about prayer. I think it would be a foreign thing to the early church to think about a lifestyle in which I'm a part of the church, but when the church is praying, I'm absent from it. If we go to the book of Acts and see the examples there, if we look at the tabernacle of David and the life of prayer that was there in the Old Testament, the life of prayer that is, is there in the New Testament, it would seem to the, the ancient psalmists and to the apostles and all of the believers in the early church to be an absurd thing to say, I am delighted to be engaged in this congregation of believers. I'm delighted in the gospel. I'm delighted that I've been redeemed. I'm delighted to be engaged in the purposes of God and in his mission in the earth. But I don't have time for prayer. I don't have priority for prayer. Maybe I'm taking a few stabs at it in my secret prayer life but I'm not prioritizing dwelling together with the brothers and sisters in unity. There's no sweetness to me, but here it was in the psalmist. I was glad. I want to tell you that God has purchased we who belong to him, and his desire for us is that we would be glad in him. And you cannot be glad in him without being glad in prayer. So he says from that place the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. The place where brothers dwell together on the, is on the, individ, uh, the undivided inheritance. This is the gospel. We come together in prayer. Our basis for prayer is not what my particular burdens are. Maybe I'm more burdened for missions than you are. Maybe you're more burdened for family than I am. Maybe I'm more burdened for theology, for the church to really know the word than you are. Maybe you're more burdened for prayer, that the church would pray more, or the gifts of the Spirit would flourish. We ought all to be burdened about all of these things because they are all in God's word. But our differences do not make us. Our different giftings and stronger and weaker points in our personalities do not constitute dividedness. And all of us agreeing on every single jot and tittle is not what is going to establish unity either. Unity is established when the cross lays waste to all of our ambitions, our pride, our spiritual laziness, our coldness toward one another, and we begin to see how great and high the mercy of God is, how severe our sin was, and how wonderful it is to have been bought and brought into his body and to be engaged with one another in that body 
in prayer. He says, that place where Yahweh extends the blessing is the place where brothers dwell together in unity. And that blessing, he says, out from the Hebrew text, can also be explained as the power of life or the enhancement of life. I like this one, or the elevation of life. The blessing that God gives elevates the life of himself in the church, enhances his life in the church. One more source here from Spurgeon's Treasury of David. His exposition on the Psalms, which you should get, it's actually seven volumes, mine is. Uh, you should get this. It's rich not just for Spurgeon's commentary, but because he dug out of his old library where he had books that dated back to the 14 and 1500s. He dug out what different men from the past said about the passages that he was expositing. And I, and I dug out for your sake this little passage that he gave from William Bridge on the, on the theme of pleasant. <clears throat> it is a pleasant thing for the saints and the people of God to agree together. For the same word which is used here for pleasant is used also in the Hebrew for a harmony of music, such as when they rise to the highest strains of the viol. When the strings are all put in order to make up a harmony, so pleasant is it, such pleasantness is there in the saints' agreement. The same word is used also in the Hebrew for the pleasantness of a cornfield. When a field is clothed with corn, though it be cut down, yet it is very pleasant. Oh, how pleasant is it, and such is the saints' agreement. Some of you remember a time when you felt a vital agreement in prayer with other saints, and you can hardly remember the last time you experienced that. Some of you would say, I don't know that I've ever known that. And Paul would say, and the Lord would say, and even the ancient psalmist would say, this is what the Lord has desired for you, the redeemed. Because that, that kind of connection and unity with one another can only happen as evidence that that kind of unity and connection is happening vertically. When we as God's people have been brought into alignment with his word and his spirit is at work in us, when those kinds of things are taking place, there will be answers that God gives in the earth. There will be fruit. What is the opposite of this kind of unity, this kind of gladness in prayer? Well, turn over with me to James chapter 3. If we want to ask why certain prayer meetings are less fruitful than others, we could find a good deal of the answer here in this text. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Here is what James tells us. He asks the question, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Before I read on, let me say this. There are four areas of prayer that the church is called to give herself to. The church is invited in a very sweet way by the Lord to come into a life of prayer, but the church is also commanded to pray in the scriptures. 
So we're commanded to pray as God's people. Why are we commanded? Because there are times when we are operating more on the basis of Adam and Eve than we are on the basis of Christ. And we need to be jolted and reminded and commanded to pray. There are other times when we can sense, so to speak, the wooing of God. Come away with me and be in my presence. Hear me. Pour out your soul before me. And I want to say these four areas of prayer, I'm not going to spend time on them. I'm only focusing on corporate prayer today. But let me say there is the place of secret prayer by yourself, which Jesus exhorts us to go to. There is the place for families, husbands, wives, children, to establish what used to be called the family altar. And you could actually be excommunicated from the old Puritan churches if a husband or father did not establish consistent prayer and time in the word with his family. They actually, they actually would say, that seems to be fruit that you're not even a believer. If you don't care about your wife and your kids and their souls enough to share the word with them, to be praying with them. So family prayer. Then there's this thing that Jesus calls abiding in me. Abiding prayer. While I'm at work, while I'm at play, while I'm eating, abiding prayer. And then there is prayer among the assembly of the righteous. Prayer with the church. Prayer with God's people. I want to say all four of those will grow dim if these kinds of things in James 3 are active in our lives. So you ask, I wonder why I'm struggling so much with prayer. Personally, with the church, well, here might be some of your answers. He says in verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There will be disorder and every vile practice in our secret prayer lives, in our corporate experience of prayer, if we have selfish ambition, if we have envy, if we have bitterness, if we lift our souls above the saints, rather than coming together on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of that glorious inheritance. So, he goes on to say, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And here's the promise, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I just want to challenge you with regard to corporate prayer. If your experience regarding corporate prayer based on what you have experienced and what goes on in your mind when you think about praying together with the church. If it is cynical, if it is <clears throat> full of selfish ambition, if in your mind you're sizing up the saints always, or if it's just all out detached, like I'm not even going, and I don't even think it's that important, if that be the case, then, then what you're doing is cutting yourself off from the life of the church and the life of Christ as it is to be experienced together. 
And our fruit as the church will be hindered and diminished to the degree that we devalue prayer as a people. Prayer is a body phenomenon. It is an individual phenomenon. But we are not saved only as individuals. We are saved into a people. He is not the head just of me. He's the head of us. There's a corporate flavor about the gospel and about the people of God that we need to see. And and when we don't see it, when it's blurry to us, when we feel detached from it, it's only because we're not seeing him clearly and we're not seeing one another clearly either. But there's a promise given to us that there's a certain kind of unity, a certain kind of prayer where Yahweh himself salvifically turns to the community life of the brothers. That's what this scholar says. Salvifically is a fancy word for savingly. He turns, he commands the blessing when the people of God humble themselves before him and before one another and and confess we need him. We need his word. We need his spirit to be at work in our midst and we need one another. You say, well, how much do we really need one another? Should we be that dependent on one another or interdependent? I would say look at the example of the apostles. How often do you see Paul saying, pray for me or pray for us that we may preach the gospel with boldness, with clarity? It reminds me of the story of Charles Spurgeon, which I've told before, where he stood before several thousand souls. He was accustomed to preaching to thousands of souls and had seen Many, many, many souls passed from darkness to light. And one day on the platform, before he preached, under his breath, he said, Lord, I thank you for the fruit that you've allowed me to see. What a privilege that through my preaching, this many would have passed from darkness to light. And the Lord, he says, impressed upon his heart, uh, don't look too much to yourself in that, Charlie. Those two elderly women on the front row have been giving themselves to prayer for the salvation of many in London since before you ever came here. And much of what you see before before yourself now is the direct fruit of their prayers. And he was humbled and realized something of the glory of what it means to dwell together in unity in prayer. It's not something cheaply attained. We've got to ascend the hill of the Lord together. And we've got a lot of baggage with us that keeps us sometimes. Only the gospel can give us the faith to drop the baggage and to make the ascent up the holy hill of God. Let me give a few statements here of characteristics of the early church as it was given to prayer in this way. We see these different attributes Specifically, I want to focus on these two. Awe, the awe that rested upon the early church and a sense of reverence that rested upon the early church. Some of you will be able to relate to this, some of you will not. But I want to bring you into the biblical testimony of what it meant for the church to be a praying church. And speak, since we've been speaking of Spurgeon, let me give you this little testimony that he gave about the prayer meetings at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Charles Spurgeon died in 1892, but he was the pastor for over 30 years of a church in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, it was a church 
that was known for many things, chiefly for Spurgeon's preaching. He was called the Prince of Preachers. But connected to that were the many uh, services that the church provided to the city. They had, I think, something like over 60 different kinds of outreaches and services uh, to the church. But something that is less known about the Metropolitan Tabernacle was their life in prayer, specifically their life in corporate prayer. So a few times a week they gathered as a church and hundreds of them would gather. And I want to give a little bit of the flavor of that prayer meeting, just as Spurgeon is looking back retrospectively. Here's a little paragraph he gave. He says, Dear friends, I think that many of these Monday evening meetings for prayer will never be forgotten by us who have been privileged to be present at them. Let's hit the pause button. (laughs) When was the last time you thought about prayer meetings as those that will never be forgotten? I will never forget this night when the Lord met us in that way, when that brother was burdened in that way, when that sister prayed with such a note of faith, it could only have been God. And he met us, and we know that he will answer us. He says they'll never be forgotten. This is the same sense that was upon the early church when it says they were continually amazed or they were filled with a sense of awe because God was meeting them in prayer. God was hearing them. They had what Spurgeon called the most precious thing in the universe, the ear of God. He says, perhaps even throughout eternity, we shall gratefully recall the hallowed hours that we have spent here around the throne of grace. I know that very often as I've gone home, I have felt that the spirit of prayer has been so manifestly poured out in our midst that we have been carried right up to the gates of heaven on the wings of believing supplication and the sacred anointing which we have received from the Holy Spirit's gracious influences has left a blessed perfume and holy savor upon us long after we have left the assembly. Reminds me of A.W. Tozer's question, when was the last time you tiptoed away from the assembly where you gathered with the saints with a sense of reverence, with a sense that God has been in our midst? Isn't that how Paul described the early church in 1 Corinthians 14? Say, don't all of you just thunder out in tongues, but be jealous for prophecy. That is to say, be jealous that God would speak with clarity in the community for then people who wander into the assembly will say, surely God is in your midst and will fall on their faces. This sense was there with the early church. I have been in many prayer meetings where I left in the same way, where I could scarcely talk to someone. I remember being a young man in Bible school and we had many prayer meetings in those days, often all night prayer meetings. And I remember times when The sacred anointing Spurgeon described, a sense of God's nearness, resided with me so profoundly that when I got home, all I could do was lean my chair back in the car and look out the window at the stars and speak to the Lord and sit in silence and say, I don't want to quench your spirit, O God. There was an old praying man who used to travel with 
Leonard Ravenhill. Some of you have heard of Leonard Ravenhill. Well, there's a guy who is less known who is called Thomas Hare, H-A-I-R-E. And he would travel with Leonard Ravenhill and he would never preach. He would just pray that God would bear fruit through the preaching of the word. And, and uh, he, was a, he was actually by trade a plumber. And he kept his plumber's job and he was self-employed so he could save up money and then go on trips uh, with Leonard to give himself to prayer. And someone asked him once, why is it you don't trifle with all of the other things that, that our culture trifles with? You don't seem to be as consumed with politics or entertainment or food. These things have a place in your life, but you're not, conf- you're not consumed by them. Why is it? And he said in his Scottish accent, if I'm remembering right, I remember the phrase, and it sounds Scottish anyway. He says, I don't engage in these things, and I'm not consumed by them because I don't want to lose me power with God. I don't want to lose my power with God. What he has given me in communion, I don't want to quench his spirit. I don't want my affections to be trampled by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to know what it means to be a man of prayer. And I want to engage in that life with a people who are growing in that grace in a remarkable way. So that it would be less less uncommon or more common for us to know what it means where awe and reverence marks us as a people, and we begin to say more and more, I was glad when they said unto me, hey, it's 7.45, it's time to head to the prayer meeting. I was glad when they said unto me, oh, it's time to head up to the building, we're gonna worship and hear the word. I was glad, it was good and pleasant. I found the Lord there, I trembled, sin was exposed in my life and I was cleansed. There's faith for that. We need a strengthening, a deepening of faith for that. We could survey the book of Acts to look at the corporateness of prayer. I won't spend time looking at every passage because, frankly, there's so many. But we can just make note of a few. In Acts 1.14, it says they were with one accord and devoted themselves to prayer. With one accord. That means... They are different people with different perspectives on life, even perhaps on finer points of doctrine. They had some differences. But with one accord, they were engaging in prayer as brothers and sisters. And that ironic oil, that dew of Hermon rested upon them as a people such that the outsiders looked upon them and there was something different about them. It wasn't their clothing. It wasn't their... Talents, there was something different about them, and it was the spirit of prayer. So we see in Acts 1, that's taking place in Acts 2. They devoted themselves, among other things, to prayer. They did, together. This doesn't mean they all built their own little prayer rooms and went off to their own prayer rooms, even though Jesus encourages that as well, and it's crucial. This means that together, They were devoted to the Lord in prayer and they wanted to be there because their hearts had been so enlarged to see not only how important it is, but how precious it is. 
In chapter 4, which I read from a few weeks ago, they, they pray at, following the time of persecution. They pray together that God would give them as a church boldness to preach. And the building they were in began to shake. I've heard it said over the years that their prayers shook the building and you get this romantic image of a bunch of people almost vibrating and screaming and the building shake. That's not really what happened. What happened was they had faith and a burden in prayer. They prayed and God shook the building. I mean, the vault, it wasn't like they turned the decibels up. There was a heat of fervency and faith that was there. It may have been loud, crying out. It may not have been, but inwardly it was the same. What Paul says, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord in Romans 12. That means be boiling in spirit. And they were beginning to experience this as a corporate people after the pattern of prayer that our Lord laid. In Acts 6.4, the apostles say, let's appoint these different ones to serve the community and take some of the load off of us that we may devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. In Acts 13, they are praying and worshiping and fasting at Antioch. And out of that context, the apostleship to the Gentiles begins. And Paul and Barnabas are sent by the Holy Spirit through a praying ecclesia. And they go and preach the gospel and suffer persecution and bear great fruit and plant and nurture churches, making disciples, appointing elders. And the mission of God begins to lighten the nations surrounding Antioch. In chapter 12, we see again that they are praying together when Peter is released from prison. Their prayers together, like the oil that flows, the unity together, their concern for their brother Peter, their concern for the witness of the gospel, their unitedness in that, caused a kind of prayer that was so precious that God himself sent an angel to break Peter out of prison. Well, that sounds like a cartoon. I'm not sure that really happened. Well, I pity you then because it did. And prayer is diminished in our minds and hearts in many ways for no greater reason than our doubt and unbelief in God who is above and who means to put on display his wisdom, character, and power through the church, our doubt in what is called supernaturalness. The scriptures are charged with this. Prayer is filled with this idea that we need help and power and strength and grace outside of ourselves. It must come from somewhere else. So there are many examples in the book of Acts of prayer together, corporate prayer, and how it bore fruit for the deliverance of Peter, for grace and boldness and strength to face persecution, for the advance of the gospel among the nations. We, might, we may well say that if Antioch was not a praying ecclesia, Paul and Barnabas probably would not have been sent because God in his sovereignty has instituted, deposited, established prayer as one of the great means by which his purposes find their fulfillment in the earth. So the nature of prayer is corporate, and we see that in Acts. There's a great importance that needs to be attached to corporate prayer in our minds, and we need to ask the Lord for faith regarding that importance. 
What does it mean to pray together in this kind of Davidic unity? It is learning what it means to come together as a people and to discern the mind and heart of God in prayer. It means to come into agreement with God himself. When we have agendas in prayer, when we have pet movement ideas that we bring to prayer, we dilute the waters of prayer that the church is called to soak her soul in. This is maybe one of the greatest problems in prayer, is that we come to prayer not with a biblical framework, because we've been in the Word, not with a God-given view, because we've not been asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, but instead we come with catchphrases. Just to give a quick example, maybe if you were in some kind of a conservative church, what we might call that, and you would hear phrases that are similar that always come off in prayer, like, Lord, lead and guide us. Lead and guide us. I heard one Baptist pastor lamenting that his elders always said that in prayer, and there was nothing that felt like it was coming originally from their hearts. It was lead and guide, lead and guide, lead and guide. <laughs> in other circles, like maybe a charismatic circle, you hear catchphrases that are common and everybody seems to react to them. But when you really think about them, they're quite unbiblical and detached from the way in which the apostles prayed. We need to be a people that knows what it means to discern the mind of God, to ask for the help and power of His Spirit, that we might pray that which is on His mind. Romans 8 tells us, we don't know what we ought to pray. The apostle is speaking about the whole church, but even the apostle doesn't know what, what he ought to pray. But the Spirit gives us utterance. The Holy Spirit gives us utterance. And by looking at the scriptures to know God, by looking at the scriptures to know how the saints prayed, and as we plead for and believe for the work of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts, we may begin to grow as a church that prays even as the early saints prayed and sees the fruit even as the early church saw fruit. Where numbers pass from darkness to light, where the church is encouraged and built up in profound and rich ways, where unbelievers dare not go near the church out of fear, and yet they hold them in high esteem, and numbers are still being added to their company daily. It was a great power that rested upon the church. We need to know togetherness in prayer in this way. And I'll close with this thought. What are the three primary things that we need as the church to encourage our corporate life in prayer? I've already touched on them, but I want you to get these things in your mind and heart and be intentional yourself about growing in these areas. So beyond actually going to your secret place of prayer and actually going to prayer gatherings when the saints are there, I'm assuming that those who would be partners and members of this church would begin to say, okay, I need to at least go. I need to pray. To be a part of the church means to engage in that which God is doing through the church to prioritize what God prioritizes, so let me go. But, but beyond that, when we arrive, we must be a people who know what it means to treasure the Word of God in prayer. On a practical note, you'll actually find me and others praying out of scriptures. I just did it this last Thursday. Sometimes I'm 
worn out and I don't know what to pray. And not always, but sometimes it's as my eyeballs are looking at a psalm that I see something and the Lord quickens it and I pray out of that. You should do that too. You should pray the word. Meditate on it. It will, it will shape and hone your prayers to become more like the prayers of Jesus himself. Let's get the Bible back in our prayer lives and in the way that we pray as the church. Not so that we're all sitting there just reading the Bible for a whole prayer meeting, but so that prayers are quickened and we're praying out from the foundation of God's word. Number two, we need the Holy Spirit desperately. We don't know what to pray, and our prayers will have no more power, in a sense, than a Hindu's prayers without the work of the Holy Spirit. We must turn to him. In one sense, if we belong to Jesus, we always have his help. But there's a reason why Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. There is to be a power in prayer. Paul said in Ephesians 6, pray at all times in the spirit for all the saints. He didn't just say pray with your words or pray with loudness or quietness, but pray in the Holy Spirit. That means depend upon him, believe him, wait on him. As you pray, be jealous to be praying those prayers which are in keeping with the will of God, the word of God, the mind of God. That's what it means to be subdued before the spirit. Lord, let your power come. George Whitfield used to pray right before he stood up to preach a simple prayer, power, Lord, power. I got thousands of people behind me that I'm about to speak to. I'm not clever enough or powerful enough to save them, but your word with your spirit can shatter the rock and save them. We need that same attitude with prayer, power, Lord. We want to pray with faith in what's on your heart. So we need the word to be central, the scriptures. We need the Holy Spirit desperately. And lastly, we need one another. We need to be mindful of one another, discerning what the Lord is praying through different saints, amening one another, supporting one another, and growing in unity in that way. So this is a picture of the church, the praying ecclesia who prayed with one accord. I would like to close in prayer with Matthew chapter 6, which whether you've thought about it or not, is itself a corporate prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or let it, your name be sanctified, let it be kept holy, let it be treated with reverence in the earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I pray that you would give to our church grace and wisdom to learn what it means to pray with one accord. How sweet, how delightful, how wonderful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Make us increasingly a praying ecclesia. We thank you for the prayers that have been offered over these years. We thank you for the prayer meetings we already have. We ask for a deepening. In Jesus' name, amen.